Right in the heart and the center of Hebrews. Michelle and Max, the child shall be great. <laughs> I've been praying for a safe delivery for you, but I think I'll change it to safe and soon. Father, please, a safe and soon delivery for Michelle. In Jesus' name. Your dad asked me to lay hands on you, but this will do. This will do. This coming Wednesday will be, our online message will be coming forth, and it will be, I'm calling it Delta Day. It will be the day after the 79th anniversary of D-Day, a turning point toward the liberation of Europe, of course, in 1944, June 6th, D-Day. We have another Delta going on. It's called Deorthosis, and it's right in the heart of our passage also, deorthosis, but that's coming. Deorthosis means the correction. It relates to lots of other words that we like, like apocatastasis pantone, the restoration of all things, and the reconciliation, universal reconciliation, has to do with the universal rectification or justification of all things, and it's found in Hebrews 9.10. And the correction, it's called. So we're going to relate that to another D word. So Wednesday's message online only will be called Delta Day. Today we have a different word that I'm going to focus in on, and it's this word, amomas. That's a breathing, silent breathing. So it's A M Omega O. M, Omicron, O, S, Amomas, and it means unblemished or without defect, and it's a descriptive word for, in the Levitical cultus, for the lamb, the sacrificed lamb. It had to be without blemish, without defect, and of course this is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ and his sinlessness and the one-time offering. My friend Dave Bradshaw used to say when some, his attention was drawn some, to something, he's still around, so he still says this, I'm sure, but he would say, so-and-so pulled my coat to this this week, and he turned your attention to it, pulled my coat to it, and I always think of that when the Lord, when I'm studying, one thing the Lord keeps pulling my coat to, no matter where I go, and what I'm thinking is that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God and that that's the central heart and center of all the Word of God, really. It starts all the way back in, really, Genesis 1.1. But in Genesis 22, as we know, Abraham says to Isaac, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And... God then spared Abraham's only son, Monogenes, but God did not spare his only son, but freely handed him over on behalf of us all. And guess where that is? Right in the heart of Romans. Romans 8.31, the central statement of Romans, 
God is for us. There is no God but God for us. The very fact that God is means that God is for us. God is love, so God is for us. And God did not spare his only son, but freely handed him over on behalf of us all. The opponent of Paul wants to emphasize how God hands over certain people to certain lustful, destructive habits. In Romans 1, 24, he says it over and over again, 24, 26, 28. God hands them over, God hands them over, God hands them over. Paul really comes to answer that all the way at the center of Romans when he says God handed over his son. In Romans 4.25, he was handed over for our transgressions, for sins, delivered up for sins, and then resurrected on account of our justification. The all who sinned are justified. And we're working on that, too. We're having kind of a backward glance at Romans. And we read Romans with the light on. And lately, we've been reading it with a greater light on. So the Lord keeps pulling my coat to the centrality, the radical center being the Lamb of God. The Lamb at the radical center will be the name of today's message, in fact, the unblemished Lamb of God. William Lane, one of the eight or nine commentaries I'm reading on Hebrews, said this statement. It's very concise, and I think it really sums up where we're headed in this chapter and in Hebrews 10 also. He said, The blood of Christ provides a graphic synonym for the death of Christ in its sacrificial significance. And this statement Concise as it is, is very definitive of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ provides a graphic synonym for the death of Christ in its sacrificial significance. William Lane in his commentary on Hebrews. When the blood is mentioned in respect to Jesus, it has a metaphorical reference to the meaning given to the blood in the Levitical cultus and in the ritual animal sacrifices in which the blood of animals was poured out in death and sprinkled unto purification. The pouring out refers to a sacrificial death. Jesus, in instituting the Eucharist, said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, many there being an understatement, many also being in Matthew 26, 28, the equivalent of all of humanity, all humanity in all places and all times. That's because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation not only for our sins, said the Jewish Christian John, meaning not only for the sins of Israel, not only for the sins of the so-called church, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When the blood is mentioned then, and we are on a blood trail in Hebrews, in respect to Jesus, it has the significance of what is known as a metonymy, more specifically. A metonymy is a figure of speech also. And so it has a reference to the blood of animals poured out in death and sprinkled unto purification. 
Jesus' blood is also spoken of as being sprinkled, meaning purifying the heart and conscience. More accurately, Jesus' blood then is a figure of speech called metonymy, that's M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-I, M-Y rather. It's the use of the blood in sacrificial death of Jesus, which it is associated both by association with the blood in the Levitical cultus and with the actual death of Jesus on the cross. In a climactic peak in John's Gospel, in John 19.34, the beloved disciple, not the Apostle John, not one of the sons of Zebedee, a man outside of the Twelve, closer to Jesus Christ than any in the Twelve, possibly a priest himself, called John, called the disciple whom Jesus loved, was close enough to see the flow of blood and water come forth from the pleura, or the chest cavity, the side of Jesus, when his side was pierced with a javelin. The blood and water that came out, then it was followed in John 19.35 by John saying, this is my witness, I have witnessed this, and everybody knows my witness is true. He was known to be a true witness. He was the ideal witness of Jesus Christ. He got a lot of things Jesus said metaphorically, poetically, when the 12 didn't get it and when the majority of the church doesn't get it today. The blood and water went out from Jesus' pierced side was an indication of his true humanity, for he was always the man even before his incarnation, as God, as eternal God, he was viewed by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1, to 28, as a man above, anthropon anothen, a man above. He had the form of a man, but he had the splendor and radiance of Yahweh. Hebrews says that, that he is the very radiance of God himself, the radiance of the glory of God. So he was already the divine man. But he took on human blood and flesh like ours. His flesh was torn. His blood poured forth. And that showed his true humanity. And also the water and blood coming forth. Blood and serum is a medical witness we know now to his real death. He was really dead at that point. He was a dead man at that moment. So the blood and water went out from his pierced side. That was John's indication. The resurrection from the dead bodily of Jesus Christ is real because his death was real. He was really dead. And if he was really dead, then his resurrection, three days and three nights later in the metaphor of Israeli time, three, nights and, three days and three nights later, his resurrection from the dead was real. His entry into an alteration of the bodily condition into one of imperishability, incorruptibility, and immortality was real because his death was real. And John, more than anyone else, made it very clear that he was really dead. So it was a, light, it was a witness to his true humanity as the incarnate eternal word of God. And he partook of blood and flesh like us, says Hebrews 2.14, that he might have 
victory over that he might destroy the one who had the power of death or use the leverage of the fear of death over humanity all their lives. That is the devil. He destroyed the works of the devil in 1 John 3.8. So the blood and water that went out from Jesus' pierced side is also an indication that the curtain to the Holy of Holies was torn open in reality. Because as Hebrews 10.20 says, and only Hebrews says this, the curtain, that is to say, his flesh. So when he appeared to the disciples and said, look at my hands and my side and my feet, he was saying, look, I am the curtain torn so that you can all approach my father. You have access to my father. And so the blood and the flesh, the blood and the water that went out from Jesus' pierced side was an indication of his true humanity as the incarnate word of God. It was a witness to his real physical death and as such an anticipation of his real bodily resurrection from the dead. Jesus was really dead. He was a corpse. When the Roman soldiers approached him to perform what is known as the crurifragrium, C-R-U-R, Crurifragium. And that was customarily, especially when the Romans wanted to go home, the Roman soldiers wanted to go home or go to a bar or tavern or something, they performed in order to make sure that the crucified felon was dead. They would go up with a mallet and smash the lower leg bones that would send fragments of shattered bone through the bloodstream to the heart and sure, assure the death of the felon because they were executed by the cross, by the death of crucifixion. When they came to Jesus Christ, though, they saw that he was already dead. Again, John's making very clear to us he was really dead. He didn't swoon like some gossipers say, and that's people still suggest in their phony books and phony suggestions trying to undermine the gospel. But he was really dead. The soldiers recognized a dead man when they saw one. These were battle-hardened men. And these are the same men that said when they looked at him, truly, this was the Son of God. Not just one centurion said that, but all who were with him said it, recognizing Jesus Christ died in a way that the most honorable soldier and hero would have regarded as heroic. So they saw that he was already dead. And so they didn't perform the crurifragium. But something more important happened because they didn't break his legs. John said this was in order to fill full the scripture, to fill it full of meaning. This was in order to pull fill the shadow with substance because as the scripture says both in psalm 34 20 we'll take a glance at it in a moment and all the way back in the levitical law or the law in exodus 12:46, the lamb that was to be offered on passover was not to have a single bone broken not a bone of the lamb would be broken that was a definite levitical ritual 
regulation and statute, Exodus 12:46, but it's also repeated in Psalm 34:19 when the psalmist David in this case, and this is a really curious psalm where on the occasion in which he wrote this psalm, it's actually kind of a funny occasion. But and I'll explain that in a moment. In Psalm 34:19, many are the afflictions of the righteous one. Now, if you interpret the scripture under what I call Christological concentration, like I do, you interpret the righteous one as not just anybody who has righteousness, but as Jesus Christ. He's called the righteous one. He died, the righteous one, for all the unrighteous ones. Guess who that is? Everybody else. Everybody. He died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, or that he would, bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 through his torn flesh, the curtain was torn to the way of the holy of holies in the heavens. And that has a universal significance, as we're going to see also. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Not a bone of him shall be broken. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, not a bone of his shall be broken. Of all the suffering that he endured, all the threats on his life, a target since his infancy of the world and Herod and evil, never was a bone broken in this man named Jesus. Never was a bone broken in this child through his childhood. Never was a bone broken even as he was whipped and beaten beyond human recognition and impaled on a cross. Not a bone of him was broken because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sins of Israel, not just the sins of ignorance, but the sins of the world, ignorance and cognizance, willful and involuntary sins. All the sins of all people living in all times and so this was a depiction by John of the Lamb of God. Didn't he hit the ground running with that when he said that John the baptizer, John the immerser, saw Jesus walking? And he simply said, behold, look, there's the Lamb of God, John 1.29, who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. That theme Though you don't see that word lamb jumping up everywhere, that theme resonates all the way through to this passage in John 19.34, all the way to 36, really 30 to 36. And so the blood to which the beloved disciple witnessed, bore witness in John 19.35, was also an aspect, perhaps, the most important aspect of Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God. The very fact that these Romans knew nothing of this prophecy but refused to break his legs, the lower leg bones, because they saw that he was dead already, was a fulfillment or, let's just say, a filling up of a shadow with substance. And I agree with Brian, the word fulfill kind of can be overrated. It's plerao often means fill full. The shadow is filled full with the substance. And so 
Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God was further attested by the fact that the soldiers didn't break the legs. They did not execute what was under orders for them to execute. Crorefragium, the fracturing of the legs. Just another piece of Roman cruelty. Since, in John 19.33, if you're wondering where this is exactly written, since they saw that he was already dead. This was to fulfill or fill full the sacred text, the sacred prophetic text from the Psalms, Psalm 34.20 and Exodus 12.46. Not one of his bones will be broken, speaking of the lamb. Now, what struck me, and I always like the Lord when he surprises me with things. Psalm 34 was written by David on the occasion when he pretended to be insane. Now, you think of David and you think of his sin sometimes. You think of his splendor as king. You think of his bravery in battle. You think of him as a fugitive that's always a half a step away from death. And this is one time when he thought he was dead for sure, Because running from Saul, he went to a city of Philistia that was ruled over by a king named Achish, A-C-H-I-S-H. And he thought for sure he was a dead man. And so what he did was he pretended to be insane in Psalm 34.1. It actually explains that. It's the first couple verses of the psalm. And it means in the Hebrew that he literally changed his face. He made his face into a madman's face. And he dribbled spittle all over his beard. He was like foaming at the mouth. And he started. He went up to the gate and started scratching on the, the gate. And so when they brought him to the king, the king says, What, what are you bringing me this nutcase for? I, I don't have time for this guy. Yes, I know he's the one that they sing about, that he's slain his ten thousands as Saul has slain his thousands. Look at him now, though. Get rid of the guy. So David was pretty smart, not exactly honorable or dignified, but I think I would have done the same thing. If you knew that a madman wasn't somebody that you destroyed, and you knew that about the culture, what would you do? If they would kill you otherwise, I would suddenly be the craziest guy on the planet. And I would do things that would make a king want to kick me out. And he did. So, but the point is, David was spared and let go. But later on, we know that Jesus Christ was not spared. He was not let go. And there was no way out. And he didn't take a way out. This reminds me of, again, when Abraham went up the mountain, Mount Moriah, to offer Isaac his son, was ready to plunge the knife into his son when he heard a voice from heaven saying, stop. And he stopped and he said, he showed, he pulled Abraham's coat to a ram in the thicket to illustrate that there would be a lamb provided instead of Abraham's only son. God did not spare his only son. So this psalm psalm itself, Psalm 34, Septuagint 33, has the theme of someone being spared. David, 
in 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15, as you see the story, it's actually kind of humorous in a way. But David was spared, like Isaac in Genesis 22, but unlike Jesus, whom God did not spare, but offered up for us all. Psalm 34 said of the righteous one, Psalm 34, 19, Septuagint 33, 20, a title given to Jesus Christ according to Christological concentration. When I say Christological concentration, I mean that when you see Jesus Christ everywhere in the scriptures, it helps interpret the scriptures, takes away the fear, takes away the guilt, takes away all kinds of misinterpretations. Romans 1.17, for example, the righteous one shall live by faith is a picture of Jesus Christ living in resurrection as a reward for his faithfulness, not of an individual believing in Jesus and being rewarded with justification. The righteous one is Jesus Christ there. He lives in resurrection because of his faithfulness to God, faithfulness and obedience that led him to the death of the cross in Philippians 2.8. Paul's only addition to that hymn was the little phrase, the death of the cross. Not just any crucifixion on any cross, the death which tasted the wages of all the sins of all mankind, Jesus' death, on the cross, the specific cross on which Jesus died and put away the sin of the world. Because speaking of the Lamb, the passage that I think is the defining passage and the defining declaration of Hebrews is Hebrews 9.26. We're coming up on it shortly, not today necessarily, but we're coming up to it in our exegesis. Now once, at the crux of history, at the termini of the ages, Christ appeared to put away sin by the offering of himself. And that's where we're headed. If I can't give an answer to God at the end of my life, at the judgment seat of Christ, where we will each and every one be evaluated, all of us will be evaluated, I want to be able to give an answer to him when he says, what was the central message that you proclaimed for 45 or 50 or 60 years, if he gives me more time? I will say, Jesus Christ and him crucified, Father, was my message. It was the center. You kept pulling my coat to it, so I kept going to it. That's the message. Jesus Christ and him crucified, the lamb at the radical center. Not just the lamb, the slaughtered lamb, as Revelation 5, 5 and 6 puts it, in its centrality. We've taught many times in Revelation that the Lamb is mentioned 28 times, 4 times 7, that the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God is mentioned 4 times, 4 times 7 is 28, 28 mentions of the Lamb, meaning that the Holy Spirit goes into all the earth to bring a testimony of the slain Lamb. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So at the judgment seat where the Lord says to me, did you do what the Holy Spirit does? Did you do what the Holy Spirit led you, which is to bear witness to the slaughtered lamb? I will be able to say, yes, sir. Yes, Father, I did. Not perfectly, but I did. 
And so, Christ and him crucified, the lamb and him slaughtered. Slaughtered, but standing, resurrected. For this same slaughtered lamb appeared with the scars still intact in his side and his hands and his feet in a body that was not only imperishable and incorruptible, but was on the way to being glorified in his ascension. For his body was not glorified until his ascension. It was imperishable, it was incorruptible, but he was on the way to glory. And that's why he said to Mary in the garden, don't touch me, I have not yet ascended. He was on the way to a glorification. So when Paul saw him, he saw the body of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, appearing in that glory and splendor. The splendor was so great, it knocked Paul off his horse and unhorsed him and was brighter than the sun in Syria at noon. And that's pretty bright. And so when we see him, we shall be like him because we will be glorified in seeing him. We see the beatific vision, we will be beatified, as Vicky Song announced today. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. When we see the beatific vision, we will be beatified. For as many as God called, those he also justified. And he justified all, according to Romans 5.18. And as many as he justified, these he also glorifies in Romans 8.30, in what's known as the golden chain. Not one link is broken of the other. Whom he foreknew, those he called, whom he called, those he justified, whom he justified, those he glorifies, and that's our destiny, the destiny of all humankind in every place, everywhere, no matter what their particular brand of sin was, whether it was an overt sin that everybody could see, and gossip about and write about and put in their stupid social media posts, or whether it was someone with secret, self-righteous, arrogant sins, which in one sense are far worse. No matter what, Christ died for all of the sins of all the world. That's what's amazing to me. So when evil reaches a crescendo, and it hasn't yet, but it's going to in our time, when did Jesus come the first time? This is a message coming down the road. When did he come the first time? When sin had increased to a point of critical mass. Adam came with Adam's sin. Sin came, passed into all the human race, and with it, death. Moses came. What did Moses bring? The law. What did the law do? Increase the transgression. Increase the transgression in Romans 5.20. But what had happened when the increase of transgression happened, not only in Israel but all over the world, when in, the increase of transgression reached critical mass, what did God do? God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the sin-hijacked law to redeem us. And we were in an obviously necessarily needing to be redeemed state, the human race. So when does he come the second time? I'll tell you when he'll come the second time. I won't give you a date because I'm not one of these rapture predictors who keeps getting embarrassed. When I was in Bible college, Professor Stan Ashby said he's coming in 1984. 
He didn't come in 1984. Then they said 87. Then they said 88. Then they said Israel was a nation in 48. So 40 years later, 88. 88 came. 88 went. Then you remember it was Y2K. Whoa. Wow, your computer might not work. So, who's dependent on a computer? Well, I am a little bit. But then it was 2012, and they even made movies of cars going over cliffs and earth splitting and earthquakes and idiotic socialists from Hollywood making movies to scare the hell out of people and politicians saying, we only got eight more years left. That was nine years ago. And so it's, I'm not going to do that. But I am going to say that it's quite possible that evil, not sin itself, but evil itself will reach a, an almost a point where humanity is on the verge of self-destruction totally. Nuclear self-destruction. It would be just the perfect time for the Lord to come, wouldn't it? You see, it? People don't get the idea, that the right idea about this. When he comes, it isn't to snatch out a few million people and then rain hell fire down on the, on the earth. It's to restore all things. It's to raise the dead. It's to bring a universal change and alteration of the universal condition, including the raising of everyone from every epoch of time and making all time contemporaneous, bringing salvation. He comes not with judgment. As they used to say, Jesus is coming again, and he's ticked. They didn't say ticked. But I don't want to be vulgar. He's coming again and he's mad. He's, not com- he's coming again, but he's not mad. He saved you. He saved the world in the cross. He comes with salvation in his second appearing in Hebrews 9.28. Just when mankind perhaps reached the very crescendo of revealing to the whole angelic community that man can't save himself, no matter who is in political power, no matter who is in governmental authority, no matter who is in the hegemony of human government, no matter what nation has what kind of military power or strength, and even moral reformations can't do it. Uh, That's coming. That message is coming. I almost stole my own thunder. And so, this psalm is a theme of someone being spared. A righteous one, however, Jesus Christ would not be spared. Paul is characteristically direct. You say, when does Paul get to the heart of the matter? Paul's always at the heart of the matter. Paul, wherever you read Paul, he's always at the heart of the matter. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's always at the heart of the matter. You go to 1 Corinthians 1.1, and Paul's already at the heart of the matter. You go to 1 Corinthians 2.2, he's already at the heart of the matter, and he says so, Christ and him crucified. You go to 1 Peter 5.7, and what does he say? He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been killed for us. That's what it says in the Greek text. Christ, our Paschal lamb, Pascha, 
Paschal lamb, Passover lamb, has been killed for us, slaughtered for us. So let's celebrate the feast with joy, with transparency, godly sincerity. Paul's always at the heart of the matter, but he's characteristically direct with respect to the radical centrality of the lamb. Christ, our paschal lamb, has been killed for us. We needn't at this time speak in great detail of the concentration on the slaughtered lamb in Revelation, like Revelation 5, 6, 5.9, 5.10, 5.12, 13.8. The lamb who was slaughtered from the foundation of the world, the foundation of the cosmos. And I'm going to prove again and again, and suggest at least again and again, that the act of the slaughtered lamb is the beginning of the new creation. It is the cosmogenetic act. The new creation, as we're going to see it, is ruled over by the lamb on the throne, which means that the whole creation is going to bear the stamp of the unimaginable love of God and the lamb who gave himself for us. And so, we've spoken in the past of the centrality of Jesus as the lamb of God in Romans especially in connection with God's universal promeity, his being for us, the whole human race, Romans 8, 31 and 32, along with Genesis 22, 8. God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering, thus sparing Isaac, aren't you glad, Isaac, but not, <laughs> but not sparing his son, rather handing him over for us all, Please notice the word all in Paul. It's 70 times in Paul, in Romans alone. Romans is the first time Paul actually sat down after all his other epistles. Romans is the last one he wrote to a church, incidentally, even though it's the first one in the canon. He finally sat down and wrote. He became closer to what we call a systematic theologian in Romans than anywhere else before. And so if you really want to know the heart of the matter, you've got to go right where he became systematically theological, and that's Romans 5. And in the heart of Romans 5, he talks about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and his obedience to the death of the cross, his one act of righteousness by which all were made righteous, all who sinned were made righteous, and his one act of righteousness by which all were given life-giving justification. Romans 5, 18 to 19. He wasn't a, theolo a systematic theologian. And he was always at the heart of the matter. He was always a hard charger everywhere, not just Galatians, everywhere. Paul was a hard charger. And he was a man who led from the front, a man who was a target of the Romans, a target of the Jews, a target of the pagans, a, a target of some Christians who didn't understand the gospel, especially Christians who thought you were justified by the works of the law, even though they would pay a little bit of attention to Jesus, maybe have a crucifix in their church and bow down to it every once in a while, or mention, oh yeah, Jesus died, but you're justified by the works of the law. Yes, Jesus died. Isn't that splendid? He's a wonderful example. He showed God loves us, but you're going to hell unless you do the works of the law, unless you invite Jesus into your heart, unless you pray. It makes me so mad because I like the organization to hear a guy get up 
who helps so many people so many times, but then tells you you're either your soul is either going to live forever in hell or you're going to live in heaven. It depends on you making a decision now to say you're sorry for being a sinner. I'm really sorry for doing something I couldn't help doing if the world lasted for 10 million years and I lasted for 11 million years. I'm not sorry for being a sinner. I happen to be born that way. And I didn't even know I was a sinner until I was in Christ and looked back and said, man, I was a hell of a sinner. And to do all these things is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. They pay attention to your individual faith as if that can justify, and there's never a verse in the Bible that says that it does. The justifying faith is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by which he became obedient to the extent of death by which he was killed as a slaughtered lamb for us. And by us, I mean the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Have you not read that definitive New Testament saying in the New Testament? The world to himself. So if God justified the world and reconciled the world to himself in Christ, then who in the hell goes to hell? Franklin or whoever else. I don't care what your name is. Get the gospel straight. One thing I respected about Dr. Billy Graham was at the end of his life, he admitted that he wished he had studied more. If evangelists would study, sometimes under a pastor who studies, a pastor theologian, they might get this gospel right, like Paul did in Romans 5 through 8, the whole unchained gospel. Imagine that. You get millions of people listening to you, and you actually say the right gospel. Wow, that would be really something. That would answer the prayer that we sang in that song today. So, sorry for not being a respecter of persons, especially if some of the persons you might respect. I respect them too, but I don't, I don't live for their approval. Now, we're at the center of Hebrews. What's there? Well, the Holy Spirit, the divine author, author of this heavenly homily, has also made Jesus the Lamb of God to be the radical center. However, in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit also shows the Lamb to be the archpriest that makes the offering. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the same person as the merciful, great, universal archpriest. When he says great archpriest, megan archierus, megan great means universal, universally saving, universally representative archpriest. When he says great shepherd, the lamb is also the shepherd. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world is also the great shepherd, meaning he's the universal shepherd of the sheep. He doesn't just shepherd Israel. He shepherds the nations, according to Revelation 12.5, Revelation 19.15, referring back to Psalm 2, 8 and 9. Yes, I know the Bible. Yes, I know the scriptures. Yes, I know the sacred texts. No, I don't need my notes. The only reason I have notes is so I can put down in accurate writing what I really said so when they come down and say, you didn't really say that, I'll say, yes, I did. Here it is. It's right here. 
Yep, said it, wrote it, my signature's on it. My initials are on it. ARK, A-R-K, mine. I wrote it. I'm responsible for it. When I quote somebody else, I quote somebody else. I put down where they said it and put it down in print and note it. And so when they make little videos where they AI you and make you seem like you're saying something that you're not, which they will do, some of you at least will know, that's not him. He didn't say that. But one thing you're going to, you want to be a preacher? Here's the, one of the first things you'll find out. If you're a preacher of the true gospel, guess what else you are? And I'm not referring to the store. You're a target. You are a target. And there's all kinds of ways to get at a target. And it's not so overt anymore. It's very subtle. The serpent was the subtlest beast in the field, the trickiest, the craftiest. He gets at his targets in ways that aren't obvious. They aren't glorious. They aren't romantic. They aren't, oh, the, the, the devil took him out by a long shot from a 50 caliber from an ISIS member. No, it might not be that way. And you say, what if they finally get you? Well, they finally got Jesus, but the results of that kind of backfired. They finally got Paul, but the results of that kind of backfired. Evil is reaching a crescendo to the point where I'll probably never watch the L.A. Dodgers again. Oh, I said something specific. But it's going to backfire. It always does backfire. There is still a pivot of believers, and I do like that term. There still is a remnant of those who understand this radical grace. And they may be a pivot that turns history from destruction to a new renaissance of freedom. Still possibility for that too. So, in Hebrews alone, Jesus Christ is blatantly identified as an archpriest forever like Melchizedek. He's the one. Who is this archpriest forever like Melchizedek, they wondered for centuries? Only the author of Hebrews said, it's Jesus. He's the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek, but he's also the lamb at the heart of the revelation. He's the lamb, according to Hebrews, Jesus is the lamb who's also a shepherd, Revelation 7.17. It's explicit there. And in Hebrews 9.14 that we're going to look at in closing, in connection with Hebrews 13.20, where it's implicit. Christ, the lamb, is also the archpriest. Christ, the judge, is also the judged. God gave all the judgment, all judgment, without exception, to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. John 5, 27. Jesus receives the award. I have the right and the privilege, the prerogative of all judgment. What does he do with it? He, he receives the judgment due to us. That's what he does with it. So the judge becomes the judged. The archpriest becomes the offering. The priest is the offering. The lamb is the shepherd. The shepherd is the lamb. The Lord is the slave. The Lord is the serpent. servant. The Lord becomes a serpent hanging on a pole. He even dies 
for the redemption of the angelic beings called fallen angels. He is the serpent hanging on the pole. Jesus Christ, the judged, the judge who was judged. God the Father is the judge of all. In, in Hebrews 12, 23, he gave all judgment to his son. God, the judge of all, is judged, according to Romans 3, 4. You will be vindicated in the day that you, God, are judged. When was God judged? When he allowed himself to be judged in Jesus Christ on the cross and then raised from the dead, vindicated. <clears throat> Much more on this subject coming up. But let's move to a close. In Hebrews, Jesus Christ is blatantly identified as the archpriest forever like Melchizedek. Great is called this archpriest. Great, Megan, Hebrews 4.14 and 10.21. It's a descriptor of Jesus as archpriest and of the Lord Jesus whom God, he's called the God of peace or the God of reconciliation, led up from the realm of the dead. You will show me the path of life, said, said Jesus through the psalmist in Psalm 16. God showed him the path of life. Wake up, son. I'm going to lead you out of this realm of the dead. He did. It's called resurrection. And what is he called? He raised up or led up from the realm of the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Great shepherd. Great archpriest. Great shepherd. The great archpriest is said also to be a merciful archpriest in Hebrews' first mention of him in Hebrews 2.17. A merciful high priest, which also associated him in Hebrews 2.17 with the propitiation or the mercy seat. In Hebrews 2.17, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2, 1 John 4.9 and 10, in which he became sin that we would all be made the righteousness of God in him. We, the world, would be made the righteousness of God in him. Great is associated with Jesus as archpriest, has universally salvific connotations. Let me say that again. It has universal saving connotations. Because as great archpriest, he made propitiation. <clears throat> in fact, he is the propitiation for the sins not only of the people called Israel, but for the sins of the whole world, in 1 John 2, 2. There is no limited atonement. Even if your favorite man, John Calvin, says so, there is no limited atonement. Take the L, write the hell out of tulip. There is no limited atonement. There is the unlimited atonement. And so... Jesus Christ is the propitiation, not for the sins of the elect or the church, not for the sins of Israel, not for the sins of ignorance, but for all sins of all the world, all people in all places. And so, this is what I want you to see as we move to a close. <clears throat> he shepherds the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep, raised from the dead, shepherds the sheep. That also has a universal saving signification because he is shepherd who leads and guides not only Israel but the nations. He shepherds the sheep who are the peoples, all peoples of all times because as the good shepherd, he laid down his life for the sheep. 
The sheep has ultimately to do with all people of all times and all places. I'll show you in a minute. I'll show you right now. Because when this one died, all of humanity died in 2 Corinthians 5.14. And when he was led up from the realm of the dead, so effectively and yet to be demonstrated in reality, all of humanity was led up from death. One day, not only Israel and not only the church will say, but look at Psalm 100 on your own. It says, all the earth will shout. All the earth is a metonymy of speech for all the population of the earth in all of its times. All the earth will shout. You don't see the planet, the globe shouting. You see all the population, all the people in all the places and all the times and all the epochs of human history. It says all the earth will shout and acknowledge that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us and we are his. Says who? Says Israel? No. Says the church? No. Says all the earth. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Who says that? Everybody who ever lived in any place at any time on this planet. Say, what about people from other planets and all those UAMs and UI? God will deal with them. I have no, I got enough time only to deal with the people on this planet. Don't ask me about people from other planets or things from other planets. Not interested. When I'm interested, what interests me is the Word of God. I'm so fascinated with it that stuff like Star Wars and Star Trek and Starman are the most boring things I could ever consider. They are actually mildly nauseating to me. Fantasies, sci-fi, all that stuff next to the reality of Jesus Christ and the scriptures, the sacred texts, and what they predict of our future, what they demonstrate of our past, what they show of the destiny of the earth. And you want me to be excited about Marvel heroes? Come on. I just threw up just a little bit. Uh, let's close. All right, let's close. The Marvel universe. I don't marvel at it. I'm sorry. CGI doesn't thrill me. AI doesn't thrill me. People don't intimidate. I don't care about dictators in this world today. I don't care that much about politics. I do care about the sacred text of the scripture. All the earth will shout and acknowledge that the Lord, it is he that has made us and we are the people and the sheep of his pasture, Psalm 100, 1 to 3, Septuagint 99, 1-3. Notice carefully, this is the praise and thanksgiving filled acknowledgement of the whole earth. That is, of all people from all times who have there ever inhabited this planet. So we'll close with Amomos. Here it is. Now I've said Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is at the radical center of Hebrews. Let's see it. 9-11, now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come. That's the radical alteration of the human situation. Universal change. And our coming, that's a radical alteration of the human and creational condition. Through the greater and more complete tent not made by human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all through the sanctuary, not by the blood of goats and calves, 
but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of he goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the external person, the body, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished, there it is, amomas, as the lamb of God. Does the word lamb appear here? No, but the word amomas appears here, which is the prime adjective for the sacrifice lambs under the Levitical cultus. Un unblemished to God. Purify our conscience. That's the innermost person in the central part of the human consciousness. Virtually every psychological malady that isn't chemically or hormonally a problem is a problem of the conscience. The blood of Christ purifies the conscience, the highest level of human consciousness that affects every other level, the centermost area of the human soul that affects all the rest. And this is something that would be curative of 90% of psychological and psychiatric ailments today. Get the word of the cross into the heart and center of the human conscience. Now, that also gives people the motivation to forgive those who abuse them, those who hurt them, those who did terrible things to them. And forgiveness is the key to mental health in those cases. He offered himself unblemished. It's a word that points to the burnt offerings offered from the herd in the Levitical cultus. It's a word of, for the animal that is to be, quote, a male without blemish, amomas, a male without blemish, amomas, Leviticus 1.3. And an offering selected from the flock, he must offer a male without defect, unblemished, amomas, Leviticus 1.10. We're dealing here with Christ offering himself amomas as the lamb at the heart and center of Hebrews, at the heart and center of Romans, at the heart and center of Revelation, at the heart and center of Genesis. As we've said before, the first two words in the Greek text of the Bible are NRK, which is in Christ, in the beginning, in Christ. And the last word in the Greek text of the Bible in Revelation 22, 21 is pantone all in the Greek text. So put the first two words with the last word in the Bible and you have in Christ all. That's the message of the Bible. If you never hear me again, if I don't make it to the next time we're here together, then you remember I said the whole message of the Bible is in Christ all, all in Christ. Now, amomas, Leviticus 23, 18 times 2. And in number 614, the oblation or burnt offering of the Lord was to include one year old lamb without blemish, amomas, for a sin offering. One ram without blemish, amomas, for a peace offering. Jesus' one offering is the reality of which all these offerings were mere shadows. As the sacred text of Hebrews says later on, he appeared once at the crux of, this, of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He loved me and gave himself for me. That was the motivation implicit there. 
And doesn't this word amomos remind us of Hebrews 7:26? This is the kind of archpriest that's fitting for us, one who is holy, without malice, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who has no need to offer daily as the archpriests of the Levitical order do, for first for his own sins because he's without sin, and then for the sins of the people. This he fulfilled once and for all when he offered himself. And how about where we're going in Hebrews 9.24? And I will close with this. Look at Hebrews 9.24 all the way through 26. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere representation of the true, but into heaven itself. That's the tent, the new tent, the, the real tent. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. For us, for us all. Verse 25, jumping there, not in order to offer himself many times, Palakas, many times, just as the archpriest entered into the sanctuary yearly. Back then, the archpriest had to go every year. Priests went in to the first room day after day after day. The archpriest went into the second room once a year on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. But never were sins taken away in that process. Only the consciousness of sin was heightened every year, according to Hebrews 10.3. Every year, a reminder of sins. But he didn't offer himself many times from the foundation of the world. Once. When? At the foundation of the world. Meaning, the real creation of all things, the heavens and the earth, happened in the passion of the slaughtered lamb. The action that brings about the real new creation is the passion of the lamb of God in his being slaughtered. That may be the furthest advance I've made in systematic theology, even though I, like Paul, am not a systematic theologian. So let's read it again. The Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere representation of the true, but into heaven itself now it would appear in the presence of God for us, not in order to offer himself many times from the foundation of the world, just as the archpriest offered into the sanctuary, entered into the sanctuary yearly with the blood belonging to another. In which case, he would have had to suffer death, that is, the absolute death, the wages of sin, many times since the foundation of the world. But now, once, once and for all, once, it says, a key word in Hebrews, once he was revealed, once he made an appearance at the termini of the ages, that is, at the end of the old covenant age, in the beginning of the new covenant age, at the crux of history. He appeared for the removal of sin. Does Hebrews say the same thing as John the Immerser? Look, look, there's the Lamb of God, the spotless, unblemished Lamb, who what? Took away the sin of the cosmos, the world, the whole universe. He takes out the sin of the universe because all the universe is waiting with us for its liberation from slavery to corruption, which he will bring that liberation through the sacrifice of himself. Amen over and out.